This is Labor Wave Radio. Labor Wave Radio is an independent podcast and is sustained by our subscribers on our Patreon. So if you enjoy the show, please become a patron at patreon.com forward slash laborwave. Based on your membership tier, you'll receive gifts from us, including original made stickers, illustrated zines, and our Labor Wave t-shirt. And if you can't contribute monetarily, you can support the show by following us on our social media and SoundCloud and giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, as that helps us reach new listeners. Labor Wave Radio puts out a new episode every two weeks focusing on work and labor organizing from an anti-capitalist perspective. You can write to us and share your comments or questions about any labor organizing you have going on at laborwavenews at gmail.com. Gabriel Winant, welcome to Labor Wave Radio. Thanks for having me. Nice to join you. So your book is called The Next Shift, and I really, really love it a lot. There's so much details in the book. It's such a rich history. It's not possible to cover everything in an hour that you cover and all the aspects that you look at in this Rust Belt, particularly Pittsburgh, history of the steelworkers. So what I wanted to do is just focus on the story of unions, the story of working class power or lack of working class power in this period that you focus on. And I thought to start, it would be really great to hear the story about Pete Duhonic that you tell. It's like kind of a quick story in the book, but I feel like so much is embedded in it. In particular, I feel like it counters in some way this pretty typical story you hear about the capitalist class and unions having something of a temporary labor peace. I think somebody refers to it as the great exception when workers were treated well, high watermark of unions. And then in the 80s is when the capitalist class really said, fuck that agreement, let's just destroy unions and go after them hardcore. So this story about Pete Duhonic seems to be like a great moment in time to problematize that. So could, could you tell more about him? Yeah, so uh, he is a worker. It's a story, I, I'm glad you picked up on it. It's a story I often tell to kind of exemplify this early part of the book where I'm talking about the steel industry in the post-war decades. Pete Dohanek, maybe Dohanich, I'm not sure how you say it, was a worker at Duquesne Works, which was one of the giant integrated steel mills outside of Pittsburgh. And, you know, to research this part of my book, I read a lot of old grievances, basically, uh, archive grievances. And, you know, most of them go through big piles of them, and most of them have very little information, but maybe one in 10 has a whole nar- has narrative attached to it of some length. So this is one of those. And the reason I did that was because I was interested as a kind of method in the points of friction in everyday life. I figured if I could kind of identify points of friction 
moments when conflict erupted in just the kind of normal course of daily routine, uh, that would be a clue for me about something structural going on. So I found a lot of grievances from the late 50s that were in one form or another about the problem of speed up. And that's not my discovery. You know, it's been known for a long time, particularly since Jack Metzger's great book, Striking Steel, that the industrial conflict in the steel industry in the late 50s centered on the question of work rules and under that speed of production. 59 steel strike was fought over that issue, which is the biggest strike in U.S. history. So I was finding all these grievances that were in one way or another about speed up. This one, basically, you know, what's happened is this guy, Pete, has done something that has led to his termination. And then the termination is being grieved. So uh, he basically, uh, as the story is told, is from the perspective initially of the plant guard, who is like, yeah, I'm sitting in my booth at the edge of the plant. And, uh, this, you know, Pete comes up to me from the inside of the plant and says, give me your gun. Give me your gun. I need it to kill my foreman my gang leader. And the foreman is like, go back to work, man. Uh, <laughs> I'm not giving you my gun. So, he, you know, an hour goes by or whatever. And then again, the guy in the booth sees Pete Dohanic being dragged out of the mill, basically. Apparently he seems kind of drunk, you know, I mean, who knows, but that's the impression that this guy has. And as he goes by, he kind of rants again. I'm going to get that bastard or something like that. Then an hour later, he turns up across the street in his pickup truck, visibly brandishing a rifle. And the you know, management office, the plant office faces onto the street. They see him through the window. They call the cops. The cops come. They arrest him. They take the gun, which turns out to be loaded. And, you know, they terminate him, right? Um, and this then leads to the grievance. And there's, I think, a couple of interesting things about this. Yeah, it's just a little story in some way, but a couple of interesting things about it. One, he doesn't get fired. The union gets him reinstated, not in the job that he had had, but nonetheless, you know, he's, he's in the general labor pool. So he gets knocked down a bunch of rungs in the kind of internal workplace hierarchy. But uh, he doesn't get terminated from his job despite bringing a loaded weapon to work. And that alone, I think, just like tells us something, right, about, about the idea of the great exception, what, that we actually, what we do have to take seriously about that idea, right, that is kind of high watermark of working class organization and power was such that this guy didn't lose his job. You know, his buddies on the, on the, or his workmates on his crew testify, you know, he's right. Our, our foreman is constantly writing us. He is always trying to make us do things that we can't get done. You know, he threatens us too, uh, that kind of thing. So there's a kind of operational shop floor solidarity that's in place. And that translates into a kind of larger, you know, plant level power, right? In the kind of grievance committee and ultimately into an industry-wide power so in 59, the industry, steel management, which bar basically the big uh, dozen or so firms bargain jointly one contract with the United Steelworkers of America. They've been doing this for the whole post-war period. No, that's not true, but for a couple contracts. And, you know, they are oligopolistically organized. Basically, they coordinate their prices pretty much in sync. They don't have a ton of global competition yet in the 50s. And they're increasingly technologically stagnant, in part because they don't have a lot of competition. They haven't invested in the new kinds of steel production technology. So their productivity is slipping behind labor costs in terms of its rate of growth. And they can try to pass this on to the customer. They do to some extent in the form of cost increases on steel, which mean cost increases on cars and houses. But if you do that too much, you invoke the anger of the federal government, which is constantly trying to control inflation. And 
this is a kind of constant political dynamic throughout the 50s. Every steel strike winds up getting settled basically in the Oval Office. It becomes a kind of issue of national concern. Famously, Harry Truman tries to nationalize the industry during the Korean War so he can control this problem. So in 59, the companies, you know, they try to solve this problem by going after work rules and in, in bargaining. This provokes this huge strike. And, you know, again, basically, the Republican administration, which for its entire eight years up to this point, has been saying, Eisenhower has been saying again and again and again, we can't politicize collective bargaining. The government cannot be involved in resolving strikes. And again and again and again, they get drawn into resolving strikes because it's so costly to the federal government and you know the people who control it and their political agenda to have the steel industry shut down. So that's how the 59 strike is ultimately resolved too, is that the, administ- the Republican administration basically leans, I mean, I'm simplifying it, but basically leans on the steel companies to give up on the work rules issue after four months of strike. So like that's at the macro level, a version of a similar story, right? Which is like, there's a structural contradiction about providing security to the working class, economic security to the working class through the mechanism of private sector collective bargaining, right? That that's how it's going to happen. It's fundamentally political concern. It's political project of incorporating the working class into capitalist democracy is happening through a, through public supervision of private sector activity. And that plays out at the macro level, at the structural level, you know, as like Nixon and Eisenhower call up U.S. Steel and say, this is over. And it plays out at the individual level for a guy like Pete Johanna. And, you know, I think that it's really important both to, re- as I was saying earlier, both to recognize what's so extraordinary about that moment of working class power and also how incredibly contradictory it is. They can't fend off the speed ups. They can't fend off the attacks, right? They can't, I mean, the conflict is ongoing because, and there's not a satisfactory resolution either in a moment like the strike or in like the showdown over this guy's job. There's kind of constant trench warfare leading to a kind of unstable situation for the industry as a whole over the long term. Right. And I think it also challenges that narrative around how the 80s were the moment of like real capitalist class counteroffensive and reaction against working class power and unions, and that companies would have to have been bold enough to even introduce these changes in the workforce in the first place, to think that they can test the union power enough to compel them to then come up to this strike. So that's another thing I just want to think about a little bit more and talk about more is like, probably not a fair enough question, but how much power did unions really have in the 50s? It seemed like they were actually like battling for inches. Were they ever really battling for yards? This high watermark, how accurate is that? I put the moment, uh, the kind of hinge moment, and I'm far from alone in doing this, uh, in the immediate post-war years, like the late 40s. So basically, there's something kind of, I think it's fair to say, indeterminate in what's going to happen with the labor movement between its recognition and legalization in the mid-30s and the end of World War II. That's a period of 10 years. That's the 10 years of the CIO's growth, right? When it emerges from nothing, organizes mass production industry really dynamically and rapidly, consolidates and institutionalizes itself during World War II, increasingly under the protection of the federal government generally, and under the protection of its allies in the Democratic Party in particular, and also begins to get incorporated you know, into kind of mainstream politics through that process. So over this period of time, and this is a kind of argument that often gets made, and I think has some truth in it, the sort of systemic threat posed by an organized working class to the American political system is diminished by the incorporation of labor as one element 
in the liberal coalition. Uh, rather than having American politics and society be structurally polarized on class lines, right? It's instead kind of the American politics are divided by party and the kind of liberal coalition or the democratic coalition, which includes the liberals, uh, you know, also includes labor, includes Northern African-Americans who are connected to labor, includes famously Southern Dixiecrats, includes elements of the you know, business and the capitalist class. So it's kind of pluralistic system is going to emerge by the Cold War. And the question is, how do you get from the kind of dynamism of the CIO, the moment of the sit-down strikes and the kind of heroic polarization of, of American society by class to this later moment when labor is kind of one interest group among many? And, you know, you, you could argue that happens during World War II. You could even argue it happens in the late 30s. And I think there's some truth in that. But certainly after the war, right, this proposition is tested in the largest strike wave in U.S. history, which is the 45-46 strike wave. Virtually every industry goes on strike in the you know year after the war ends uh, in spring 45 or summer 45. Auto, steel, coal, rail, electrical, I mean, on and on. And, you know, in some cases, like the auto strike, there's a somewhat kind of systemic challenge to your dimension to this in that, you know, Walter Ruther and the auto workers are still kind of demanding input over investment decisions at this point, um, which they don't succeed in winning. One in, I forget the number, but some incredible, it's like 5% of all Americans or something like that are on strike in 1946, not workers, but Americans. And, you know, they win a lot of really good contracts in many cases, but I think it's fair to say that politically labor is resoundingly defeated in this moment. So they have success at the economic level, but at the political level, they're defeated in as much as the political controls over the economy that had been in place during World War II all get rolled back. Like, for example, the Office of Price Administration, the system by which the federal government set prices for all kinds of goods during the war. You know, there was an effort to preserve some version of that in the post-war years, which might have helped with the problem of inflation that we were just talking about in the steel industry a decade later. So they lose a bunch of fights like that. And most significantly, they lose the fight over labor law itself, right, in the form of the Taft-Hartley Act, which is passed in 1947 uh, in direct, well, first the Republicans take back Congress in 46 in direct kind of reaction against the strike wave, and then pass the Taft-Hartley Act shortly thereafter. I think your listeners probably all know the outlines of what's in the Taft-Hartley Act, but, you know, severely constraining in various ways what labor is allowed to do. Uh, illegalizing various tactics that they had relied upon and banning more or less from leadership uh, communists who had been instrumental to the construction of many unions and in particular had been kind of the bearers of the vision of the labor movement as a transformative social force, right? Not just as a kind of voice for the workers so that they have one voice just like everyone else has an organized voice, but rather as a transformative social force. That vision had been nourished by the radical left and uh, when they came under attack in the kind of Taft-Hartley and then McCarthyist moment and get purged from the labor movement, get purged from the kind of what had been the popular front, that vision also has to retreat. And with it, the idea, not just of kind of labor as a transformative social force, but you know that's closely associated with a kind of early phase of civil rights agitation around race and racism. It's associated with certain kinds of you know, avant-garde feminism that we could, we could point to. Uh, so labor becomes, I mean, again, this is a very classic story, but labor becomes kind of bureaucratized and ossified by this process, right? As it, as it is reduced to nothing more than an interest group, 
It's still a very effective interest group, so long as its members have this tremendous economic leverage that they continue to have for decades more. Uh, the 59 steel strike is a good example of. They're still able to deliver for their members in significant ways. But what the relationship is between delivering for your members in the UAW or the UMWA or the United Steelworkers or whatever, what the relationship is between delivering and transforming the larger society gets a lot harder to figure out. Bringing up Taft-Hartley and labor law, I want to hear more of your thoughts on this because the story that you told is one that, you, like you said, it's kind of well-charted, repeated a lot. Taft-Hartley, everybody agrees, really regressive piece of labor legislation that constrained organized labor and the power of unions to really transform society writ large. But there's a challenge to that story that I'm pretty warm to that argues that the seeds of that constraint, the seeds of the labor defeat, were really captured in the National Labor Relations Act like more than a decade prior to that because it insisted on a kind of conformity of labor unions to accept collective bargaining as the paradigm, the premise for unions existing is a contract, and then through that helped facilitate that ossification and bureaucracy at the top because you had to figure out how to administer collective bargaining agreements, learn the, the grievance procedure, become somewhat informal attorneys, and then even have professional attorneys on retainer all the time. So that's the argument. I'm just kind of curious what you think about that, particularly as it pertains to your research on the steel industries and the rise of the healthcare industry. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good question. I think it's, I find it a very hard question for myself to answer. You know, I think that the, that process that you just described, which I alluded to earlier when I, I, I think I used the phrase, the legalization of the labor movement. You know, there's no question. There's no, I think it's, or it's very difficult to resist the idea that it has a kind of conservatizing effect in the way that you just described. You know, and that comes in numerous ways, right? It comes, as you say, through the elevation of the contract of the collective bargaining agreement as the kind of purpose for existence of the labor movement of a union. You know, I mean, there's a certain way in which I think the NLRA is designed to mimic, an important way is designed to mimic the kind of liberal, you know, civil freedoms uh, and civil, you know, rights of like a citizen of an American democracy in the political sphere, right? So like you cast a vote in a secret ballot election to determine who's going to represent you. Uh, that institutional setup, which is not how all countries do it, is designed to mimic an existing kind of political representation in order to kind of be swallowed more easily, basically, right? That was the theory was that if we, if we extend those principles into the workplace, this will kind of go over legally and constitutionally and maybe, you know, politically and culturally. But, you know, there's something fundamentally false about that because forming a union is not like casting a vote in a representative. I mean, you're not doing the same kind of action uh, when you vote for a union or form a union versus when you vote for your senator. They're totally different from each other because when you're voting to form a union, you are voting to transform your own situation, right? You are becoming the thing that you're voting for. Uh, you are an entry. You are, sorry, a, a signatory, in effect, of the contract in a certain way. I mean, not literally, but you get, you know, your, your relationship to your employer is transformed, uh, assuming you bargain a contract. And, uh, you know, I think that has led to a tremendous amount of kind of institutional incoherency in the labor movement. The bureaucratization has been the, the kind of solution to that's, I know, on the other hand of this argument, one doesn't want to root against 
the formation of the CIO, I think at a basic level, you know, I mean, it's just like that did affect the transformation in the lives of millions and millions of people. And we have no idea what the alternative was. And I think it's very difficult to speculate about it. Nor is it totally obvious, I think, that all of the kind of possibilities of, you know, more radical unionism were already foreclosed by the shape of the Wagner Act itself, as opposed to by the late 40s. I think, you know, there's a good case you can make either way. Um, however, wh whenever you date it to, however you think it happened, right, it did happen that this kind of overall social settlement in which emerged, in which um, to be a member of the working class who enjoyed economic security, you got it through collective bargaining. Lane Wyndham's book is really good on this. She describes in, you know, collective bargaining and manufacturing as the portal through which working class people had to pass uh, to access economic security. And this has the effect also of dividing the working class. And this is something that my book makes a lot of, right? That when you are dispersing economic security and social citizenship through employment, but obviously a capitalist labor market is internally differentiated and unequal, then it's going to differentiate and unequalize the working class and set up potentially antagonistic relationships between those who are party to you know, collective bargaining and economic security and those who are excluded from it. So something else that Taft-Hartley does, and this is a kind of central concern of the book, is clarify that healthcare is not covered. Healthcare is exempted from labor law by the Taft-Hartley Act. It's kind of in an ambiguous state in the period before that, because they didn't specify in the original Wagner Act, and it's a nonprofit you know, philanthropic undertaking at this point in time. So they don't know if it counts or not. Uh, but the Taft Hartley Act clarifies that healthcare is not covered. And what this means is that, as I say in the book, is that um, the economy becomes sort of dualized between the kind of protected areas, which are oligopolistically organized in terms of, you know, their power to set prices and, you know, how they relate to their markets. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, markets that are much, much less concentrated, much more fragmented, often more competitive, more labor intensive rather than capital intensive, and whose workforces are not organized, and which therefore draw on uh, more socially marginal elements of the working class, workers of color, immigrants, women, depends on the sector. Uh, but that, you know, healthcare falls into that category. And between these two categories, we can think of something kind of like an unequal trade relationship between nations. By the late 40s, collective bargaining comes to include what we call fringe benefits, I mean, basically healthcare and pensions. And in particular, thinking about health insurance, what is health insurance, right? It's like a coupon for someone to take for someone else's labor, especially in this period of time when medicine is much less technologically and scientifically intensive. Uh, what you're buying with health insurance is labor from the unprotected zone. So there's a kind of structural antagonism which becomes manifest in the form of healthcare prices between these sections of the working class. And that's something that the book then tries to develop further. Well, it makes it going back to what you were saying about how one of the consequences of Taft-Hartley was facilitating the expulsion of communists and leftists in general from organized labor. It really limited and constrained the vision of the labor movement, made it more of a battling for inches rather than, you know, trying to change society. I find that interesting to counter contrast that with like the vision of the capitalist class, because all in this story, there's a lot of moments where you kind of see the capitalist class organizing for the long term. It seems like they actually have a very large and penetrating vision, even thinking about how to make 
healthcare, privatize and exclude it from the masses, clearly looks to be a moment where the vision of the capitalist class was deep. But it counters the things that we usually hear conventionally is that capitalists are only interested in short-term profits. They have no vision. They can only think about tomorrow, right? So how, how true is that? Like, how organized, the question really is, how organized is the capitalist class and how organized are they around like a long-term vision? Well, this is a historically variable question. I don't think there's one answer that applies to all capitalist classes in all types of places, right? I mean, the degree of organization fluctuates. But, you know, in this period, you know, I think that fractions or elements of the capitalist class were interested in the New Deal for various reasons, or at least willing, I mean, some actively participated in it. Uh, Thomas Ferguson's writing is classic on this. So, and then, you know, some kind of resisted it more than others. So there's a kind of spectrum between people, between factions among the capitalist class who were like, especially during the war, uh, really, you know, helping run the government, factions that were kind of going along with it, and factions that were dragging their heels and resisting. You know, the moment of national mobilization, both the New Deal and then the war, once that ends and, you know, a set of kind of compromises has kind of been, you know, temporary compromise, basically, has kind of been hashed out. You know, these kind of questions, are we, are we going to continue the momentum of the war, of the New Deal after the war are kind of getting raised? You know, then there is a real campaign to kind of reorganize capital or reorganize the capitalist class politically to you know, resist any kind of movement toward an American social democracy, which is a real serious threat. I mean, welfare states are getting constructed left and right in this period. And, you know, that would make sense in the American context, given what had happened in the prior 20 years. So, you know, you raised the question of healthcare, which is, I think, a very good example of this. It, you know, tr Truman tries to uh, establish what we would today call Medicare for all. And, you know, particularly in the context of the Cold War, uh, you know, encounters tremendous resistance to this. Uh, I mean, in general, the National Association of Manufacturers, the Chamber of Commerce, these kinds of organizations are, are campaigning very, very actively politically through, throughout the late 40s and the early 50s uh, against, you know, such extensions of, of the welfare state. And, you know, also in, in industrial relations itself, I mean, 1950 is famous as the year of the Treaty of Detroit, uh, which marks the uh, settling of the second contract between the UAW and GM after the war. One gets settled in 46 and then another gets settled uh, and implemented in 50. And in the 50 contract, Daniel Bell, who later became a famous sociologist, famously says, GM paid a billion dollars and they got a bargain. And what he's describing is the basically trading of economic security in the form of these kinds of private, privatized fringe benefits, pensions and healthcare and so on, trading those for the UAW kind of renouncing its ambitions to participate in the direction of investment uh, and, control, and the you know, control of the process of production. So the kind of united front around the kind of idea of a right to manage, uh, which that represents, and you know, around resistance to uh, you know, extension of the welfare state further in any kind of universal forms, you know, is I think a fairly significant kind of hegemonic accomplishment for capital in these years. One way of characterizing this period of you know post-war economic growth, a kind of again, a kind of classic way of thinking about it, is that management invests in the you know with a view to the longer term, which helps sustain high rates of growth, exactly because it has is has the kind of protections 
of that have been constructed themselves by the New Deal state to kind of guarantee its security and its ability to, you know, uh, operate freely. So paradoxically, the concessions of the New Deal state in terms of regulation and, uh, you know, the expanded footprint of the state in terms of infrastructure create an environment where management can actually invest for the longer view is more independent of ownership. This is a big deal in this period, the separation of management from shareholders and can take a kind of longer view. I, you know, I think that basically holds up. I mean, in some ways, a distinctive thing about capital in this period is that management as opposed to proprietors are kind of calling the shots and that will be undone in the 80s. And this period of time clearly has a lot of ramifications for today. And particularly what you're talking about with the New Deal and how that you know, both facilitated some progress in some places, but also like was a repressive force in others. What's interesting to me is that I think I saw, I'm, I'm going to get it a little bit wrong, but I saw you tweet out a while ago about the curiosity of today's organizers and activists really going deep and trying to go all out to basically recreate the New Deal. And you pointed out that we tried that and it failed. So why, what, what lessons does this period in time teach us about the failures of the New Deal as well as the promises and whether or not this is actually something we should be trying to reconstitute today? Yeah, you know, I have to say, I've been given such a hard time for that tweet, I feel like. <laughs> Sorry, I brought it up. I thought it was a good No, no, it's okay. I, well, I, I lock and unlock my Twitter account periodically, and I sort of wasn't thinking about the fact it was unlocked in that moment, and it blew up in a way that led to misunderstanding, in part because historians often use the phrase New Deal to mean the liberal political regime from the 30s to the 70s, which is not how normal people use it, right? Even like historically informed people, they think about Roosevelt as opposed to a kind of political order, hegemonic political order that lasted, you know, for decades. But, you know, what I was trying to get at with that was that I would never deny, as I was saying before, the real gains from, you know, millions and millions of working class people, both, you know, economic gains, but also, you know, dignity on the job in various ways, power on the job in various ways, and beyond the job, you know, things like, you know, attempt to construct public housing and, you know, um, for all that, that got messed up by later policy. And you, know, you can name a million different areas of life where the New Deal had a positive progressive effect. However, first of all, like it fell, right? And I think it makes sense when you look back on something that you think was in many ways positive, but which fell under attack. I think, you know, it's incumbent on you if you're politically serious to do more than just say, well, the bad guys got it, right? I mean, that's like, okay, fine, sure. But, you know, why were they able to? That's a question you have to ask, right? And if your ex historical explanation consists of like, sometimes there's bad guys who get us, then you have no way of thinking about how you're going to head off those challenges, right? How you're going to be prepared for them, how you can like deal with whatever contradictions in your own program make you vulnerable. So, uh, you know, thinking about what was vulnerable about the New Deal that opened it to, to challenge in that way. You know, I mean, my book argues, and I, I guess I would argue that there's both the kind of, these are related to each other, both the kind of limits of collective bargaining for those who are represented by it. And then there's the, uh, the limits of it in terms of who it represents, right? And so there's both like, auto workers don't control the process of production. And also there's the fact that it's harder for African-Americans to become auto workers. And if they are, they have the worst jobs, right? There's the fact that, you know, steel workers like Pete Dohanek are getting sped up 
and that's making them miserable. And there's the fact that no women are skilled workers. And, you know, for women to get access to social citizenship and economic security, they have to get married to a steel worker. And, you know, it's very, I mean, I think this is amazing how unknown this is. It's very, very explicit. It's like lots of New Deal policymaking that the agenda is to create single breadwinner households. This is like what they're trying to do. They're really clear about it. So then by the 70s and 80s, what are the politics that undo the New Deal? They're the politics, uh, I mean, of white racism, which succeeds in establishing a major constituency among working class people of, you know, kind of revanchist kind of politicized patriarchal politics, which, you know, again, has a kind of pretty broad social constituency. And what's being contested in the moment that the New Deal order falls is the question of the white single breadwinner family and whether you can, what it would mean to continue to organize a social order through, or can you continue to organize a social order through uh, routing economic security through that figure? Uh, and in the politics of inflation, which are like calamitous in the 70s for liberalism, are all about this because some sections of the working class are relatively shielded from inflation by collective bargaining and some are not. And then those are, again, are pitted against one another. So, you know, I think like the way we should think about history is not was it good, was it bad, was this a good guy, was this a bad guy? I don't think that's that helpful. I think rather what's more useful is to think about history as, you know, a kind of evolving contradictory process in which like everything that happens is in some way both bad and good, <laughs> like we were talking about with the Wagner Act earlier. And our job is not to kind of reach a final verdict on it, but rather try to position ourselves historically downstream from it, to understand how whatever was good and bad about that, whatever was going on in a given historical episode led to where we are now. Well, one of the good things about the history that you tell, and st- I go back to Pete Tehanik a lot, not saying that it was a good thing that he like brought a shotgun and was going to kill his foreman, whatever. But the fact that the workers defended him and came to his defense and came to his side, and they thought that it was legitimate for him to be that angry and frustrated. I think that really speaks volumes to the differences between then and now, because now, you know, my world is organized labor. I deal with grievances. I, I kind of feel bad for you reading through all those grievance archives and documents because I'm sure that was tedious and terribly boring work. But, you know, today I hear so much complaints from people that have been kind of in the union world for a long time, for many decades, staffers, leaders, you know, electeds and so on about the younger generation and how disrespectful they are both to the company, how much they complain about all the policies on the shop floor, how much they just don't get it. And like what they're really saying is like, they're just not obedient enough, you know, and they won't often fight over a lot of grievances that some are maybe legit and some we might say are not legit. But at the end of the day, the role should be for the union to represent its members in the grievance procedure. In this moment in time, not only did they represent this person and not get and like somehow get them off the hook for being fired, the workers came and defended him. And I just think that speaks, again, volumes to the difference in you know, what you would call like the common sense today. So that's one of the things that I think is good. And I wonder, like, what, what do you think about this? Like how distant we've gotten from that kind of culture of working class solidarity? I mean, I think there's something real to that. You know, I guess I think it comes from a couple of places. You know, first of all, and I'm sure you've had this experience or recognize what I'm saying in your own organizing life. Solidarity emerges where workers think that solidarity will be successful. 
right? You need other conditions too, but it's very, very hard to get people or for people to stick up for one another in that kind of way when they don't have much evidence in their own experience and memories of that working ever. And so partly, you know, as the labor movement overall has gotten weaker, you know, as workers structural position in the economy has gotten worse over the last 45 years, you know, fewer people have less and less, you know, fewer and fewer people have any evidence and what evidence they do have is less and less over time that it does anything for you to stick your neck out for the guy next to you. Right. It's just like not an experience as many people have had. So that's one part of it that that both due to union decline and also to structural features having to do with how much cost you can impose on the company by being disobedient for a moment or a day or, you know, a week or a month in continuous flow production, you know, in an industrial context, not all workers all the time, but many more workers were positioned economically in such a way that their disobedience immediately started imposing costs on the company. And that meant that, you know, they had a kind of structural power that made it then easier for them to stick together because there was an accumulation of experience of how that can succeed. Workers in the service industry, you know, it's not, I mean, I, I think it just doesn't work quite in the same way. You don't participate you know, in most many industries anyway, you're not positioned in relation to production in such a way that if you start sitting on your hands, even for an hour, it's going to create a big problem. It's just not how it is for a lot of workers. I think that's the key thing. Another thing I point out though, is that in the thirties and forties, the organization, I mean, the organization of mass production was at the core of the kind of transformation in the class structure of the country, but or, workers' activity wasn't limited to mass production. And in fact, it was very, very widespread in the culture industries, in journalism, in radio, in Hollywood, Disney, in music, theater. What that meant was that objects of uh, mass culture, you know, the things you heard on the radio or eventually television, or the movies that you saw, were produced in many, many cases by workers, culture workers who themselves had experience of class conflict and that that showed up in a variety of ways in the cultural artifacts that they produced and then showed to everyone else or played for everyone else. Uh, This is Michael Denning's argument in the classic book, The Cultural Front, that for a period of time from the 30s, you know, into the 40s and maybe even a little later, there was a kind of working class presence in American popular culture. Uh, Like if you think about classic early, you know, first generation sitcoms like The Honeymooners, Ralph Cramden's character, whose name in the show I forget, is a milk delivery guy. And then, you know, things like that are common across culture in that period. People, working class people are represented, and even unions and labor and strikes are represented quite frequently uh, in one way or another in culture because of the power of the working class and the way that power spilled into the culture industries. So that's, again, quite different from today. Uh, you just don't have that kind of cultural repertoire to draw on, and I think it makes it harder. But, you know, I think on the other hand, workers just like never stop resisting, right? It's a structural component of capitalist production that workers resist in one form or another. They attempt to develop solidarity in one form or another. They're more or less successful, you know, depending on a whole host of circumstances that I've just been talking about. But, you know, I think our job, if we want workers to resist successfully as much as possible, is to figure out, you know, how to take the limits of the situation that I just described and try to figure out, well, what are, you know, where are the moments of give in that? Where, where are the weak spots in, that, in those kinds of challenges that we face? 
Well, I want to bring us to a conclusion here. And I guess what you're just suggesting about the questions that we should be asking, I want to ask you the question to you. So where do you think today the moments of give are? Where do you think working class solidarity can emerge or has been emerging? You know, and how much, because one of the key insights of your book is clearly about the battle over power on the shop floor, battling against speed ups and how the ripple effects of speed ups, you know, cascaded into the house, into life at large. Where do you think these moments are today that workers can really fight back? I think there are three kind of categories to think about the possibilities of working class power today, or three areas of, of the economy is more how I put it. You know, one is today's culture industries. So to kind of continue from the answer I was just giving, I think it's hard to dispute that the area of the economy today where you find the most eagerness to organize uh, and most success organizing is in relatively kind of more educated and professionalized activities, higher ed, tech to some extent, journalism, certainly, nonprofits, this kind of thing. You know, I think that's, I mean, that's sort of how I got formed initially as a person involved in the labor movement was in my grad student union. And, you know, that certainly is exciting and something we should celebrate, but there are, well, and there are potential kind of cultural spillover effects from that, maybe comparable to what I was just talking about with, you know, radio in the 30s. I don't know, we could hope so. But, you know, the structural power of those workers is not so great, right? Their ability to really impose costs on the capitalist class and therefore struggle with the shape of society in some larger way is not so great. On the other hand, you know, we see a lot of structural power potentially with, I think in particular in the logistics sector, I mean, the, the organizing efforts at Amazon are an effort to capture this as well as, you know, struggles with like port truck drivers in LA, other warehouse workers around the country. I think we all understand that if those workers really had the kind of organization that their predecessors had in a previous moment, they really could have quite a lot of structural power potentially. You know, the, the, the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer cost, you know, billion and a half to build. I'm making that number up, but it's something like that. It costs a lot to build. It was brand new. They weren't likely to just shut it down right away if, they, if the workers had won. And, you know, a ton of value flows through those workers' hands, particularly when you think of the whole sector and the way it's, you know, makes possible global commerce. But that sector is very difficult to organize, right? Very difficult. The workers tend to be very replaceable. Often, those are the best jobs that anyone is likely to get anytime soon in a given local labor market. Uh, so, you know, it's very easy when management implies that you could be replaced tomorrow. It's very easy for workers to know what that means. And then the third, I would say, and this is what my book is about, is what I think of as the industries of social reproduction, in particular, uh, healthcare and its associated things like home care and education, maybe childcare, which is sort of associated with education. These are industries where there's not a lot of economic power necessarily in a direct way. In fact, you know, these industries are very often either public or not for profit and where workers' legal rights are pretty heavily burdened in many cases. You know, public employees in a lot of places don't have the right to strike. Home care workers have a very vexed and weird legal position. And even like hospital and nursing home workers who can typically go on strike um, and organize and do so some, uh, you know, it's not like you can really shut down a nursing home or a hospital in the way that you can potentially shut down a factory. So there's a bunch of, you know, economic and legal burdens on them, but uh, they have a ton of kind of associational political power. And what I mean by that is that those industries hold our society together. They make us a society in some way. They, 
you know, we depend on them for basic kind of social functioning. And people often know that, understand that. We saw this really clearly with the, the Red for Ed strike wave. And that potentially gives these workers the ability to kind of form a political vanguard uh, in some way for a larger, you know, working class movement or working class struggle uh, because they embody a kind of larger principle of social solidarity. And when they fight for their own, you know, working conditions and, and economic conditions, it's possible for them to fight also for a larger group of people. This is the idea we've come to call bargaining for the common good. I don't think we've really figured out how to do it yet, except, you know, in a couple of cases. But, you know, in principle, the interests of teachers or nurses or, you know, home care workers can be made to align with good political work with the interests of the kids or the patients or the residents who they take care of. And that's a potentially very potent political alliance if you can figure out how to organize it. So that's what my book is kind of trying to find a material basis for. Oh, that the book is called The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. I got to say that I love this book a lot. Wait, we really only scratched the surface of what's detailed in it. So folks should check it out, read it. It's easily one of my favorites of the year. And I really appreciate your time talking to us about it on Labor Wave Radio. Thanks for having me. This is great. Thank you for listening to Labor Wave Radio. And this is a reminder that you can support our show by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Labor Based on your membership tier, you'll receive gifts, including original stickers, illustrated zines, and our LaborWave t-shirt. And if you can't support us in monetary ways, you can still help out by following us on our social media and SoundCloud and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. We'll have new content coming out in the next two weeks.